Welcome to the Celtics Pride podcast on Celtics Blog. I'm Adam Motenko. Josh Motenko, my twin brother's with me. What's up? And Mike Minkoff. How's it going, Mike? Going all right. How are you guys oh doing? Good one, Bring Mike. In the energy. Come on, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> Today on the podcast, we're going to update on Gordon Hayward and Jalen Brown injuries. We're going to do some heat preview questions of one another. We're going to talk about how to attack the expected coaching from um, the, the defense, specifically from Eric Spolstra and the Heat. And then we are going to run through some news and notes in the NBA. First, injuries. Gordon Hayward has been ruled out for game one. It is four weeks from the last time uh, from when he was injured, which was the minimum, I believe, when he got injured. It was a four to six week uh, recovery time period. According to a Celtics blog article, Brad Stevens is reporting that he went through practice and looked good. When do you guys expect him to come back? Dr. Mike, Dr. Josh. Dr. Mike is predicting that Gordon Hayward will be back in a limited, maybe like 15 to 20 minutes capacity by game three. Ooh, I was going to say game two. with With my protracted medical training, I feel highly qualified to speak on this. I was going to say game two. Here's why. I think <laughs> I think they're going to see what happens game one. If we win, you don't need to rush him back quite yet. You can wait for game two if, or game three. If, he's, if we lose game one, I think he's coming back game two. Um, and I think he, when he does come back, hopefully he's coming off the bench. That's, you know, I'm really crossing my fingers about that so we can keep the consistency with what Marcus Smart is doing out there. And... Uh, he's going to, you know, like you said, 15 to 20 minutes a game. He's going to look a little shaky, but he's going to make some nice plays. It's not going to be the Gordon Hayward that we remember from a couple weeks ago, but hopefully that's only a couple games uh, away from him, you know, getting the rust off. And then we start to see that player emerge. Hopefully he doesn't get attacked too much on defense. <laughs> hopefully. I also expect him back by game three. I would have expected more minutes, though. I'm a little concerned by your 15 minute restriction. Um, well, we we have seen Gordon Hayward in the immediate aftermath of an injury many times. We've had the great fortune as Celtics, as Cel- loyal Celtics fans with the, the tenure of Gordon Hayward's time here to watch him come back from myriad injuries. And it never really starts super strong. Um, so for that reason, A, I'm doubtful that he'll come in in the second game and I'm highly doubtful that we'd put him in because we lost the first game. Like after everything that we went on last year, it seems like we should have learned a lesson that maybe that's not the type of pressure or situation to put Gordon Hayward in because it just sets him up to fail because he doesn't seem to have the makeup for that. Um, And that's likewise why I would only start with like a 15 to 20 minute target for his first game back. If he responds well to that, then, then ramp it up probably be at 30 minutes by game four or five. So collectively, this is going seven. Yeah. Collectively, we've spent many years not doing medical school or residency or really taking science classes. I could speak for Josh and I. Uh, So with that expert opinion, we're sounds like Saturday game three. uh, And I assume you both are in agreement that he should be coming off the bench. A hundred percent. Um, I'm not, uh, I guess, I guess it would have to, I'm not a hundred percent on it, but 
it's certainly you can't take smart off the court, especially against this lineup. So I, unless we're starting like a super small lineup and just matching up uh, Jalen against Bam from the tip, which which probably is not the best plan. And then I guess you got to take him off the bench. Moving to Jalen Brown, who took a bit of a nasty spill, uh, potentially looking at looking at the way he he did the splits. Um, Josh, you were concerned in the moment about whether he had a minor groin injury. The day after, Brown commented to Jay King of The Athletic saying, quote, I'm feeling it now, but at the moment I didn't feel S-T. It hurt for a minute, and then I heard my teammates, and all the pain went away. So sometimes the day after you feel it more. There's been, I haven't seen any other reporting, there's nothing on Twitter about any updates other than that on Jalen Brown. Uh, so we expect him, and he's not on the injury list, so we expect him to be a full participant, but... Um, any concerns about his athleticism being reduced or an impact of that injury? Yeah, I, that's not nothing. What happened is not nothing, especially the next day, like you said. I feel I'm not I'm not too worried. I don't, you know, obviously, one of us every episode likes to over catastrophize an injury, right, or over fear. I'm not doing. I think that. mostly just Motenkos. I think just mostly yeah. the Motenkos do yeah, that. We like to keep <gasps> it in the family. I can't believe you would suggest that. <laughs> Yeah, no, that I feel I feel pretty com- comfortable with that. But let's remember, Jalen had like a strained hamstring for the entire Eastern Conference Finals run. What was it, two years ago or three? Yeah. Um, and he played well that entire that entire run. So I think a groin tweak. I mean, it's not ideal, but it's less problematic than a hamstring. Um, and he's proven that he can play and tough out through injuries through playoff runs and maintain a high level of play. So like, I'd be more concerned if it was a different player. Um, but with him, I think he's kind of proven he can, he can make it work. Moving on to the heat preview questions. We're going to ask some questions of each other. And we did talk a lot about this heat matchup in the last episode, the game seven instant reaction, uh, which went out on uh, Saturday. So go to that if you want to hear a full preview. But um, let's let's ask some questions of each other. Number one that I have for for you guys is who do you think is the best player in the series? Yeah, that's the question I had for you too, my brother. I think it's easy. It's Jason Tatum, number one. What makes that so easy? I think the potential that he has to take over games now, adding his ability to see the floor a little bit, get six, seven, eight assists in, in games as he's averaging 29 and 10 uh, rebounds. It's just, that's not something that I feel like, I don't think Jimmy Butler's at that level. I, I don't think the Heat are looking for him to even do that too. They spread things out so much that you're not looking for one of those Heat players to be the best player in the series. That's not actually, I don't think that's what Spolstra needs. Um, you look at their box scores and it's like, they got six, seven guys who are all between you know twelve and eighteen points in the game. Um, that's how they beat you. But I do think we have potentially the best player in the series, and I think he's going to play like it. Um, I think the question is who's number two behind him. You guys disagree? Well, I think, yeah. I mean, I agree with the way you phrased it. We have potentially the best player in the series. I certainly think Jason Tatum could be the best player in the series. Um, 
I think it, depending on the game, there will be four, four best players out there. Uh, and it, we'll touch on the, the defense that the heat are, are likely to play in a moment, but that, that could really muck up one of these guys, which is Kemba Walker. But I think he at times is, I mean, the Raptors for all the praise heaped on um, Jason Tatum, the Raptors designed their entire defense to stop Kemba Walker. Um, Jimmy Butler is, I, I think, what remains wildly underrated and underappreciated, even even now. Like, dude's a winner. He's a difficult personality in non-winning situations or in 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 poorly managed teams, but. Like it's already been written about ad nauseum. He's a perfect fit culture-wise with the Heat, um, and he's a guy that you want on your team in big games. So I wouldn't count him out. And Bam Adebayo, I think, has the potential, especially in this series with these matchups, to shine the brightest. Uh, with and so I wouldn't rule him out as like a dark horse contender for for best player in the series when when it's all said and done. And if he's even in the running of that conversation in a real way. I think the Celtics are going to be in trouble, and I think he could be. Mike, you took you took the words right out of my mouth, but because I like to mansplain, I'm just going to repeat uh, more emphatically. I think Bam Adebayo, I think Bam Adebayo can absolutely be the best player in this series because of of how he dominates Daniel Tice and the Celtics' interior defense. Um, and I mean, it, it's it's hard to not think about Jimmy Butler as, as another potential best player in the series. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised at how confident you are, Josh, that Tatum is, is going to prove to be the best player. And, and I kind of want a little more information from you about why, because I really think it's a crapshoot. I think Kemba Walker has a chance to be the best player in the series. And in fact, I want to go out there and say he should be the best player in the series because of uh, Kedrick Nunn and um, who's the other point Gordon guard? Goran Dragic. Yeah, their defense is not good. Uh, and in thinking more about the conversation we had after the, the Raptors game seven, and Josh, you made the point about the, that def- those defensive limitations, Kemba Walker should be burning these guys more than he did the Toronto games. Uh, and, and Toronto did a nice job containing him, which made it difficult for Kemba to figure out whether he was supposed to score or pass and, and choosing when to do that. And, and then he had some difficulty just hitting shots, um, which may have just been streakiness. But I, I really want to see Kemba come in and be the best player in the series because I think that's one of the ways that the Celtics uh, are going to need to play in order to win. And, um, and I'm, I want to see Kemba take these playoffs by the reins. And, and control them. And he, he ha- really hasn't yet. I, I agree with the Kemba stuff. I think Jalen Brown needs to be in this conversation as well. I want you guys to rank these guys one through five, though. You know, if, it sounds like you guys would all put Jalen Brown is definitely five. five. He's definitely five. Because Jalen's offense is fully unlocked by the attention that Kemba and Jason get. And that's not a knock on him. That's just a reality. I mean, his defense is excellent, but so is Tatum's. Um, Kemba competes on defense. <laughs> it's solid. Uh, so Jalen's got him there. But of the five we just named, I think 
unfortunately, uh, pain, much as it pains me, I think Jalen's got to be number five. He's certainly number three of the Celtics. Um, well, he's been the most consistent player of the group, he and Marcus Because Smart, he's getting the least think. attention. Yeah, it's not just because of that, though. I mean, there's other guys who are getting a little bit less attention, and, and he's... Well, Shemi Ojale doesn't belong been, in this conversation. Yeah, but this is, this is a, a two-year-old conversation, three-year-old conversation. Ever since Jason Tatum came to the team and everybody saw what he could be, Jalen Brown has proven over and over again each year that he's the most consistent of the two. And I, I just want to give him his due in this conversation as the top five players. So if you're ranking them, I'm going Jason Tatum number one. He has the highest ceiling. I think that he raised his level of play in game six and seven last series after some, uh, I guess, wake-up calls, for lack of a better word. I feel like he really locked in and got focused and found that flow state where he could be in the zone for longer periods of time when it mattered most because he knew he needed to be the one to step up and do that and was able to slow the game down as a as as kind of a physical response to that out on the court like mentally he got himself ready and what did you see on the court he was actually more poised the game slowed down and that's what made him so dominant i think that's why he's number one number two i've got bam out of bio number three i've got jimmy butler number four i've got jalen brown and number five i've got kemba walker i think in this series we should, I agree with you, Adam, we should see him dominate more. And I'll talk more about that because we're going to see zones. Um, and I don't think they're going to be boxes in one to take him away. But, uh, you know, his three-point shooting hasn't been that good. And, and he's been probably the least consistent of the Celtics stars. How would you rank yeah, him? Well, top five. Give me your top five. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I agree agree with your order but i would put kemba i mean kemba was all nba for a reason like <laughs> i i and not in the jalen's consistency well okay so again the entire toronto raptor strategy was focused on taking kemba away um which opened up jalen brown for lots and lots of wide open corner threes you think they were letting kemba get those wide open corner threes no um jalen still played well i'm not taking that away from him he played awesome defense and he played very solid offense consistently and he had a very 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 productive uh scoring game and efficient scoring game from the two within inside the three-point line in game seven and that was all significant um but a lot of his opportunity was coming exclusively or primarily because of all of the attention that Kemba and Tatum were taking. So Jalen is dependent on Kemba in a way that the same can't be said in reverse. Um, so I Kemba gets more attention. He's just, he's just a more dynamic, better offensive player. And at the end of the day, you know, the team that scores more wins. Uh, so, I can't put Jalen ahead of Kemba. I put Bam and Jimmy neck and neck. Um, I think I think Bam f- against us is a more problematic player. I think Jimmy's a better player. Um, and then Tatum, I, I like the way you said it. He has the highest ceiling, uh, but he also has a lower floor, I think, than Jimmy. So. It could he could end up on either side of that, but it, but if he if he shows the poise, you know he has grown a lot over the course of these playoffs. If he if he 
keeps trending that way and keeps showing the poise and growth, that's a, especially as a playmaker, uh, then he certainly could be the best player in the series. And if he is, I think, um, <laughs> I think that's a very good sign for the, the Celtics. So I would go in reverse order. First, I got to mention someone who hasn't been on either of your list, which is Marcus Smart. I think he, that's he's important to mention because he's he's um, significant enough above the other players on both the Celtics and the Heat, uh, only because Gordon Hayward isn't going to play a full series. Uh, but so Smart is is sixth. Then um, I would have Jalen Brown. Then Kemba Walker because I don't as much as I want him to dominate. I don't. I haven't seen that he's going to. Then Jimmy Butler. Then one two is going to be determined by who wins this series. I think if the Heat win, it's going to be Bam. If the Celtics win, it's going to be Tatum. I I predicted Celtics in seven, as you both did, and I I'm I'm I mean I could have predicted Heat in seven and felt just as comfortable with that. I, I that was a total Homer desire pick on my part. I I think you're getting a little too fanboy about Bam, and I'm one that just ranked him as possibly in the top. Adam, but but you're being a little a little nutty because <laughs> he's not like in a vacuum. He's just not a better player than Jason Tatum. Um, I, I'm talking series. about in this series. Yeah. Okay. Um, I so but related to what you just said, Adam, about kind of how you could see the series going either way. I have a question for you. I have my question or one of my questions for you both. Five thirty-eight today. Has the Celtics as a, not for this series, but a 59% chance of winning the finals. The highest They have of like anyone. a 74, uh, by far the highest of anyone. I mean, mathematically has to be the highest. Um, they have, I think, a 74% chance of beating the Heat. What is your reaction to those numbers? I have been watching these numbers throughout the playoffs and and even before the playoffs. I'm, I've, I've been a long time Nate Silver fan and have, have liked 538 despite what happened in 2016. Um, but I, I have, this is why I said on the last podcast that at no point have the Celtics had a better shot at winning the title than right now. And what these numbers tell me, it's, I mean, it's, it's one metric and, and I, I want to take it with a grain of salt. What it tells me is that, um, that this is the Celtics shot and and you don't know when these opportunities are going to come around and they better take advantage of it. Now, I, I, the fact that Milwaukee is out, I think that that is an advantage for them. The fact that the Western conference teams look like they're struggling LA, the Clippers no, the are Lakers going to don't a game look seven. like they're struggling. I, I no, would no, like no, to, it's just, it's just their I pit, players number three through 12 on their team that, that look like they're struggling on paper. Yep. I I stand I stand by the Lakers coming out of the West, which I said before the playoffs, and I stand by LeBron as the best player in the league. Uh, and I will say now that the Celtics won't be able to stop LeBron if we face the Lakers. Well, we're not talking about the question was not where does Mike stand. It's what does the five thirty eight numbers mean? And what they mean to no, me is that these other teams are not as good. And this is a and, but stat. Now, whether the Celtics can take advantage of the talent that they have is the real question. And this is a stat that measures on paper, like public perception, right? No, no, it measure it measures the statistical the statistical value the 
of the teammates and um, of the full team of the full roster and projects their contributions to winning based on their projected minutes played. And so a normal tries to kind of normalize that and, and put it into a comparable figure. So it is, it is projecting that the Lakers roster is, you know, top, top heavy to a point where the bottom is much less valuable than what the remainder of the Celtics roster would provide. It's saying that the Celtics are deeper and, or have a deeper, better combination of talent than the heat and the Clippers. Um, and I, yeah. I, and it's based on how they've been playing recently. It seems to be influenced by that. And I don't know the specific mechanics there. I haven't, I haven't looked into that closely enough. It sounds like it would give you the, the pretty similar results as public opinion. You know, like you watch the, you watch the Clippers, you see their on off switch. When I look at their roster though, I'm not looking at like, they don't have as good a, a, roster full of talent as the Celtics do. I feel like you look at uh, just Harold and Lou Williams coming off the bench with the starters they have and the stars they have. I feel like they they trounce the Celtics in terms of their talent on paper. But you look at their on-off switch and now all of a sudden they're losing games to Denver more than they should. And I could see that impacting public opinion. And obviously it's impacting the uh, Nate Silver's numbers. Adam, what happened in 2016? Or is that irrelevant? I mean, I'm assuming a lot oh, they, of the listeners they pre- are like me, and they don't they don't know the ins and outs of this uh, stat and Nate Silver. No, this is not this stat. This is other stats. <laughs> this is other other metrics related to the presidential election that they got wrong. Oh, and and Nate, Nate Silver is is famous for predicting accurately uh, both presidential and and congressional and senate elections. Oh, yeah. I mean, even that it was like. I think it was like a high, it was around this probability that uh, Hillary Clinton would win the national election around like high fifties percentage. It was never a guarantee. So just like with the Celtics, it's not a guarantee, but, well, that but forget they politics. Have greater than 50%. No, I'm saying it, uh, this is no, forgetting but, politics. This is just yeah. saying the, so, so let's compare the, his sports predictions to other sports predictions. Is he good at that in the past? I, I'm, I don't uh, know. I'd, ha- I'd have to go back and, and but, look more closely. I, I, I'm pretty sure his like ELO system, which is what he had before this. Now he has got this Raptor system um, has been pretty good. Um, but that but was ELO more used. The Celtics, ELO predicts the Celtics chance of winning the championship at 46%. It increases the, the chances of um, the Lakers to up to 25. So Elo calls for a Celtics Lakers finals with the Celtics winning um, by less of a margin than, or less of a chance of winning than the Raptor one does, but it's not altogether different. And how does this compare to Vegas or like the ringers got uh, odds that they keep updating? I mean, who should I listen to? Me. You're asking us like we know you guys, you guys (laughs) are bringing it up like this, this, uh, Prediction is a big deal, and this percentage Mike, is a the big most, deal. And I'm like, who, who, who cares? <laughs> the most interesting thing about this this statistic to me is that they have a current and a full strength rating, and they, yes, to my knowledge, they are basing these chances not on the Celtics' full strength rating, but on their current rating. And so, if Gordon Hayward comes back and they are at full strength for the finals, 
that that would increase the percentage that chance. Well, it would work. increase marginally, though. Yeah. It would it would barely increase. Um, for, yeah, for I think it's reason, a function the Lakers, of the Lakers' full strength rating. Rating for some reason is actually lower than their current rating. <laughs> So, I mean, the, the Celtic performance is on here as a function of basically, so Kemba, ha, according to this Raptor rating, and I won't, we won't go into this much longer. Bear with us, folks. Uh, Kemba has, is the highest rated player overall based on Raptor because his value on offense is so much higher than everybody else's. Uh, that it, and his, he still has a positive defensive rating jason tatum second marcus smart is third jalen brown is fifth behind gordon hayward and daniel tice is sixth all of them are positive and all of them are well the the first four kemba tatum smart and brown are all playing anticipated to play more than 35 minutes a game daniel tice is expected to play uh, about 24 minutes a game that's probably realistically more closer to 30 which which boosts him up even more so that is why we're performing so well. It's predicated on our short rotation and basically having a better performing top five than uh, just about any other team. Okay, so this guy, Nate Silver, you're listening to his sports predictions because of because he's been good with po- political predictions in the past. Uh, why not just ask Nate Duncan? Or better yet, Tim Duncan. Oh, because what Nate Duncan is a total blowhard. <laughs> <laughs> my opinion oh wow you know give me nate duncan or tim duncan over this guy let's move on okay uh so next, <laughs> right, next question yeah so so we talked about Campbell walker uh, his ability to beat uh the the heat guards one-on-one off the dribble get into uh, in my mind he's he's getting into the lane drawing other defenders kicking out just creating an opportunity to stretch the floor and, and make the heat, heat defense work. And likely the way that they are going to uh, shift their defense is to throw a zone at the Celtics. What kind of zone are you expecting and, and how does one best attack the zone? Yeah, I mean, I got a lot to say on this one. Uh, I think that the here's how you beat a zone defense. I think here's, here's what most college coaches would tell you. There, and in my experience in nine years, this is what I've picked up from others. So there's three ways to beat a zone. Number one is ball pressure on defense. You know, if you force turnovers and you create transition situations, you don't have to play against the zone. You know, that's set up in the half court. That's ideally. Number two is with ball movement and you shoot them out of the zone. Coaches will not stay in the zone if you get the lead. You know, at a certain point, they're, they're going to drop the zone. Number three is that you drive into and come to a stop, the paint, right? If you get into the middle of the zone and you break it down through the drive and you get a kick out, all of a sudden now this zone turns into a scramble situation where you're closing out on shooters. And that's basically similar to a man-to-man zone, or sorry, a man-to-man defense. Um, You know, so you want to take that zone and kind of turn it into a scramble situation. Um. Guys, I mean, we saw Kyle Lowry. When he gets into the paint, he always comes to a stop. That gives you time to to assess the situation and pivot and be patient and make the right read. Um, so that, that's kind of how you beat a 2-3 zone or a 1-3-1 one, one zone. 
you turn it into a scramble situation with the drive, or you just shoot the coach out of that zone. Um, I, I think that if you're talking about different kinds of zones, like I don't think that they're going to junk it up on defense. Like Spolstra, he doesn't usually do that as much as Nick Nurse does. Um, but I think the Celtics, they usually like to do their three-out high post zone offense. They put Smart or Tatum on the free throw line, right? We've seen this over and over again. Um, and you try to get the ball through the pass into that painted area and get it to someone who you know is going to make a, uh, the right decision, be able to score over the defense like Tatum in that situation, or at least be really strong with the ball and make the right reads like like Smart. Um yeah, I mean, we're, we're looking at our dynamic guards and wings to be able to drive by guys like Tyler Hero and Duncan Robinson, you know, Jay Crowder, Goran Dragic, Kendrick Nunn, Iguodala. Like, that's, that's doable for Tatum, Brown, and Kemba, right? I mean, that's a better situation for Kemba than the last series, right? And then we just got to make open threes. How do you feel like the Celtics have done? They've faced the zone multiple times uh in, in these in the bubble and, and a lot during the season, how have you seen them deal with it? I think it's kind of hit or been hit or miss. I mean, yeah. usually it's kind of Coach Stevens recognizing it and having to take a timeout to make the adjustment because our players are uh, a little bit younger and less mature and and aren't recognizing it the same way as like a Chris Paul would, you know, who's not only a veteran but elite at reading what's happening as it's happening and getting others to to see it as well. We don't have that guy on the court who's necessarily doing that. I would think Smart is is the best at that. Um, but then I think when we make our adjustments, we usually do well against it, and we have the right personnel to play that that simple zone offense that we do. I mean, the stuff that the Celtics, I think, try to do, even in reaction to Nick Nurse and all the junk he was putting in on defense, it, we like to ke- keep it simple. Um, because it helps everybody stay on the same page and, and become elite at the simple things. I think we find that to be better than Coach Stevens trying to match junk with junk. Um, I'm curious to see if Spolster is going to like show a man but then really fall back into his zone as you know, on the first pass or something, um, doing, doing those kind of tricky things that Nick Nurse did. Uh, and by Why, the way, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. No, why Why wouldn't Spolstra? I agree, historically, uh, Spolstra has been a little bit more orthodox in the zones he plays. Uh, Nick Nurse is kind of uh, <laughs> unique in the NBA ranks in the the level of, as you said, junking it up that he's willing to, to kind of roll out there, especially in high-stakes situations. Um, but given the success that Toronto had and given how, frankly ill-equipped Miami's guards are to stay with Kemba Walker. Like they, a a traditional two, three zone is going to, is not going to slow down Kemba because you can still run a a high screen against the two, three zone. So they've got to do something different. So like, why wouldn't, why wouldn't Spolster do something different? I I think for the same reason that Brad Stevens likes to make one, you know, one simple adjustment, but to keep it simple for everybody so everybody can pick it up. Everybody's going to be end up being a lead at it. Um, because what, the last thing you want, or I guess you're measuring, you know, would you rather do something a little bit uh, more unique where, you know, maybe maybe some of the guys on your team don't pick it up and now you, you are playing different players, different minutes because of, of their, you know, the complications of the reads or we're past. keeping it simple. 
we're past the point in the season where there are guys on the on the floor for the most part that can't pick stuff up. Like they can, I mean, maybe you you run a risk if Hero's on the court because he's a rookie, though he's been performing crazy uh, in a good way for them. Um, but they can have a lineup that's like Drogic, uh, Drogic, 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 uh, uh, Drogic, Crowder, Igudala, Bam, and and Jimmy. That that is not just a like athletic, versatile, uh, defensive team. It's also extremely, extremely high IQ. Sure. And uh, so, it, but and I would think the same thing. But it's amazing to me how often I see the NBA coaches keeping it simple because the, when you have everybody being elite at one detail, it's it proves to be more consistent in terms of winning than everyone being pretty good or very good at several details. Like the simplicity that I see, it reminds me of junior college coaching. You have to keep it simple at that level. And, and I would think that things would be so different in the NBA. And, and as I watch the basketball happen, especially when the games become more and more important, you're not junking it up like, like Nick Nurse's. That's but why but Nick look Nurse at the success out. Nick Nurse's had. Yeah, but here's the thing. Nick Nurse, he didn't win Coach of the Year because he junks it up and does a box and one. I feel like the, the broadcasters are misrepresenting that. As a coach, I'm seeing like his boxing, like doing a box and one is, is silly to a lot of coaches in the in, in doing that at the NBA level because it's something you would do at a lower level of play because lower levels of, of opponents aren't going to be able to adjust as well. At the high school level, you're not going to be able to adjust to certain schemes that seem tricky. But in the NBA, everyone's been through all those things, especially the great players. They've had boxes and ones done to them. Um, and maybe they're not used but to it. But it was just super effective against the conference, a team that just is going to the conference finals, but yeah. barely because of that box and one. Right. But Nick Nurse didn't win the coach of the year because of that. Most coaches wouldn't attempt that kind of stuff. He won the coach of the year because he took a team that lost Kawhi Leonard and won however many games, you know, high 50s, I think it was. And, you know, is a top six yeah, but you team can't, in the NBA. You can't separate his success from his willingness to run stuff that most coaches think is junk that shouldn't be run. He's proven that it's not junk at the NBA level. If you have the right personnel to execute it. Yeah. I'm in disagreement on you. I think a lot of coaches, I think even Brad Stevens is looking at him like, like he's, he's doing too much and we're glad, and we're glad we won to show him that that's like, Oh, I totally disagree. You're literally just making that up out of nothing. No way. It's not yeah. nothing. No, no, it's not. It's been uh, in, in the Celtics blog Slack. People have talked about that, about how there's there's probably a grudge. There seems to be a grudge between Stevens and Nick Nurse that it, that hasn't really been reported on much. Uh, and I don't know if there's confirmation on it, you know, in terms of asking either coach about it and getting, you know, affirmatives. So it's not something to report. But, you know, that's something that people are seeing, like a little bit of disdain or a little bit of competitive fire. Uh, between the two coaches where there's it's more than just that they're two good coaches or that their team is now in a rivalry. It's about different styles. It's about like Nick Nurse standing in the corner, you know, wearing kind of a greenish gray shirt uh, and, and Jason Tatum throwing a pass to him, you know, and, and he's he out of the coaching on the court. Yeah, he's out of the coaching He was bag. on the court. So, and I'm not, I don't really think that that's a huge deal. Like as a coach, I'm not going to get upset about that. But I think Brad Stevens doesn't like the antics 
doesn't like how he works the refs. It's a different style. He doesn't. Okay, before you, you've taken this conversation in diref- different directions. No, before I'm, you I'm do that further, yeah, right yeah, now. no, no. Before you do that further, I want to hear Adam what your take is on on like the the intersection between kind of the perception of Nurse as a high caliber coach and and his use of unorthodox defenses at the NBA level. I honestly don't feel like I have enough expertise to to evaluate Nick Nurse as a coach. I, I he's you know most of these coaches are way over my head. I, I just I'm not a, like an X's and O's expert. So Mike, you're you're talking to a coach right now who recognizes the job that Nick Nurse has done with the chemistry despite losing the best player in the entire NBA. Um, I think he won Coach of the Year partially because of winning the championship last year and the chemistry they built so quickly with a brand new superstar. Like the job he's done is is more for that and and the way he's gotten that team to play with so much grit and heart. That's why, in my opinion, he won Coach of the Year. I mean, I didn't ask the voters, right? But like, you can't play that down because he's throwing these gimmicks in that are actually working. Because a lot of the coaches are looking at it like, "Oh man, I would never do that. That's a crazy gimmick." Yeah, but I, I, what I reject is the idea that just because other people say it's a bad idea makes it a bad idea. Sometimes people just are set in their like. Look at Mike Buddenholzer. Sometimes people are just set in their ways to their detriment because right. they're not creative enough or effective. They, they don't like what, what makes Nick nurse special or I think is his ability to take things that other coaches would only be able to implement as junk ideas and make it something that his players buy into and play and execute at an elite level. Right? Like, but, but it all, I mean, it's all a package. Yeah. I, I fully agree with you that it's, he has to be able to get his players to buy in and like there's there's so much relationship building and communication and um, just uh, ability to kind of level with people and and mutual respect and all of that. That's fundamental to, to being a manager and a team builder, etc. And, and getting buy in. But he also has the creativity in the X's and O's. Uh, to to take things that other coaches say, oh, that's garbage at the NBA level, blah, blah, blah. And look, he ran it out, and it really, really, really worked against a team that now, according to statistical analyses that you don't care about, <laughs> uh, is possibly the best team remaining in the playoffs. But it, it almost stopped them. So... Um, Right, you know, so I, 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 I don't think you can totally remove it from the the conversation. Oh, I don't and, want to what, remove it. What I, makes him a, a good coach? I, yeah, I don't want to remove it. I just want to make sure that the general public doesn't think that it's because of those tactics that he won Coach of the Year. I think that as as other coaches look at it, they look at it, it at a strategy that you would use when you don't have the talent to win with talent. And I've been on both sides of this in terms of in the coaches' meetings. We're talking oh, about like. We have these superstar players. We got to just put them in position for them to do their thing. That's not what the Raptors do. You know, when you've got a team that's got great chemistry, but you don't have superstars, you have B-list stars like the Raptors. Oh man, in the coaches meeting, coaches are like, man, we got to do something different, you know, and we can probably put in some extra stuff because we've got so much uh, heart, grit, 
we have such a good communication. We've got consistency with our roster. Let's put in more stuff. Let's junk it up more because we can't just tell Fred Van Vliet to go create his own shot. That's not, you know, that's not his strength, right? So it's, it's a style that is based on their roster construction as well. And yeah, of course, you have to be a good coach to recognize when to take advantage of that, who to box in one. They could have boxed in one Tatum, but they chose Kemba, you know, and, and right. I'm, I'm assuming that that is a, a positive uh, perspective that, that only the good coaches have, and Nick Nurse is obviously one of them. Well, they, they, could, they could match up one-on-one with Tatum, in theory, much, much better between OG and, and Pascal, whereas, you know, neither Lowry or Van, Van Vliet could stay in front of Kemba. And that, and that brings me back to Miami – yeah. Because that's that's the point is like Lowry and Van Vliet are light years better defenders than Dragic, Dragic and um, and none. And hero. so and hero, right? So so which is why yes, I agree with you that Spolstra, like Stevens, prefers to keep things simple, etc. But. Spolster's got to be going to that meeting room and being like, well, we don't have anyone that can match up with Kemba and that can stay in front of Kemba because they don't. Yeah. There's not a whole lot of, there's not a whole lot of defensive players that can, and they can't do a two, three zone um, and expect Kemba expect to prevent Kemba from getting a lot of good looks uh, from three up at the top of the key. So, that's where I've got to, and I, you know, Miami, interestingly, has not played any zone, according to, I think it's spe- second spectrum, um, any zone possessions at all this playoffs, even though they were one of the leaders in zone uh, defense played in the regular season. You've got to assume they'll be playing zone against us. But I've got to think it wouldn't be a 2-3. Yeah. And I, I think that if they decide to deny somebody and do a box and one, you know, we can use that denied player to, to set the ball screen and force those two defenders to make a decision on how they're guarding that screen. Or we can have them space out into the corner. Um, and, you know, we're, at the same time, we're still trying to either swing the ball and hit threes or get into the teeth of the defense. Um, I'm, I'm also expecting that they may come out with a matchup zone um like an amoeba switching zone that loads up on the ball so that if you do drive by somebody the other guys are closer and able to rotate over um but the skip passes are going to be open in 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 that situation as well so there's a way to beat all of these zones it's just about us recognizing we we spoke about uh the spoltra spoltra stevens matchup and in, in, in discussing that uh josh you've you've talked a little bit but i think it's worth mentioning again uh, the Danny Ainge and Pat Riley dynamic in this this series, which has been mentioned in the news, there's there's a history there that goes back to a um, to the, the 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 games that that when when Ainge was with the Celtics in the '80s against the Lakers, coached by Pat Riley, there was a brawl between the Danny Ainge's Suns team when he was playing for the Suns and the 1990s Miami Heat. Um, I think that was also coached by Riley, or he may have just been the GM at that point. Uh, and in addition, um, uh, there's been some more recent things in the news where uh, I think uh, when LeBron was on the Heat, Danny Ainge spoke about uh, that team, and Riley came out with these comments about how Danny Ainge should shut the bleep up and, and focus on his team and how 
he was the biggest whiner when he played, and Riley knows that because he coached against them. This might be the biggest GM or executive feud in the entire NBA. Uh, Josh and Mike, what, any any additional comments on this? Yeah, I think that's it's important to note, like from the top down. You know, we've had some crazy rivalries in these playoffs already, and I mean, if you just look at it, like the Sixers historic rivalry. The Raptors, brand new rivalry, but probably the biggest rivalry rivalry we have today. I think as a Celtics fan, if not maybe the Lakers. And wait, is who is is the Raptors? I think every time we play the Raptors, I feel like it's going to be a tough game, and I've felt that way for two years straight. And now we finally had a playoff series that was historic. Yeah. So I think the Sixers were were like. Because doesn't doesn't there need to be animosity? I I mean I agree this there this is series now. is awesome and the Raptors are terrifying. But um, I I actually don't even. I mean I guess there was it got a little chippy there, especially yeah. towards, at the end of game six. Mike, Mike, don't argue this point. There's a bigger perspective of like series after series we're playing these rivalries, and then it's and then you look at the coaching rivalries that are starting to to happen here. I mean Brett Brown lost his job because of us. Now all of a sudden we're talking about a GM rivalry. You know, and that dates back to, you know, decades. This is, it's just uh, deep, you know, the type of ties that the Celtics have in the NBA that can create uh, history like this. It's, it's just the epicness of these Celtics playoffs are a, a cut above, you know, a Denver LA Clippers series that's, that's a really good one. You know, there, there's just history yeah. involved. All, all I have to say on, on this Ainge Riley rivalry and it this quote is coming back in a bunch of articles because it's all everybody wants to bring up but is this quote from Ainge after they had a brief back and forth via the media when Ainge was complaining about something LeBron did I don't remember what LeBron did Riley came at him and Ainge's response was I don't care about Pat Riley he can say whatever he wants I don't want to mess up his Armani suit, Armani suits and all that hair goop. It would be way too expensive for me. I just love it. It's amazing. Uh, it's such a wonderful added dimension to this whole thing. Um, you know, both of them want to kind of smugly hold a series victory over the other one while never talking to them. Um, it's awesome. It's great. And and Adam, as you noted last, you know, podcast. This rivalry goes into like, well, who's the best GM in the entire league? And, and you know, I think Riley has the slight edge right now, too. So, um, yeah, it's interesting from, from all these different perspectives. Danny Ainge is, is the type of guy who's not going to say much and let the plan do the talking. I feel like Pat Riley is too old to not be the same right now. And all I know is that Celtics Nation is, is rolling deep. and. Are there any Heat fans or are they all Lakers fans now that, that LeBron's there? Like with the amount of fans that follow star players from team to team, I'm curious like where the, the Heat fan base exists. Uh, obviously, they got their blog. Uh, Jeff Clark did a Q&A with their blogger, uh, their staff writer today. And uh, it's going to be great. Mike, I know you have another question about uh, this this Heat Celtics series, uh, and Josh, if you do as well, throw them in here. Mike, I'll, I'll throw to you. Yeah, so I just wanted to get your guys' stance on how do you think the Celtics are going to match up 
um, in their man on man to man defense against the Heat. Uh, let's uh, let's assume based on the way the Heat had their had their starting lineups against the Bucks. Uh, I think it was Adebayo, um, Butler, Crowder, Dragic, and Duncan Robinson as a starting five. Yep. Um, uh, so we start with Marcus Smart on Jimmy Butler, right? Josh? Yeah, or Jalen Brown on Jimmy Butler. I think when they've played in the regular season, it's always been Marcus, and they've been battling, and Marcus plays Jimmy Butler well. So Let's that go. would be my guess. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then Kemba is on on um, Dragic. Yep. And I and I would see I would think that Dragic may want to post him up. They may want to get Dragic in situations oh. uh, to get Dragic into little turnaround jump shots in the paint and stuff against Kemba. Uh, I think that that's one advantage that Dragic has. If they even want to, you know, attack somebody in an ISO situation, the Heat kind of don't like to do that as much. It's usually Bam. The, you know, they're always having actions um, with Bam with the ball, making decisions. So I don't see that happening a lot, but that's something that I think that they could look at as an advantage over Kemba. Um, so then, and you have, then you would have Tyson Bam Adebayo, right? Yep. Uh, Jason Tatum on Duncan Robinson. Yeah, give him the least, uh, least aggressive offensive player, at least, you know, from, from driving perspectives. He's going to have to run around screens, um, right? So, so maybe Jalen Brown takes that one. Yeah, can I can I give an alternate, a uh, uh, reimagining here? Can I, well, well, just I, to finish that with... up, if if that yeah, happens, sorry, then then Brown would be on on Crowder, or maybe as Josh said, that you throw Jalen Brown on Robinson, and then Tatum guards Crowder. So yeah, Mike, what what else might this look like? So, looking at the way we did the defended the Raptors. I would put Tatum on Dragic, who is having like a return to his all-star form and That's is a disruptive playmaker when he's when he's going. And I think the length of Tatum would really mess mess him up. Um, and it would take away that post option. No all Celtics fans, as much as we love Crowder, none of us are afraid of his offensive game. I think you put Kemba on Crowder. You put Kemba, Crowder's um, going to post up Kemba, but yeah, Duncan Robinson might thinking. not. That's what I was thinking. I will too. take, I will take an entire game of Jay Crowder post-ups. Are you serious? <laughs> Give it to me a hundred possessions in a row. They I will get that. 90, 98 <laughs> points. Can't you imagine you Kemba serious? running around screens? Can't you imagine Kemba doing a better job running around screens, chasing Duncan Robinson than Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown? I would, I would rather have, between Butler and Duncan Robinson, I think you're gonna have you're gonna mix and match Smart and Jalen. I think both of them can run around screens, and both of them can can you know uh, kind of rough it up with with Jimmy Butler um, in a more gritty in a grittier assignment. So, and then you know Tice just gets beasted on by <laughs> a bio, and we we hope for the best. Yeah, we hope for the rest too. Uh, yeah, no, that uh, I I I was surprised you took three and a half. You took the under on games. Tice fouls out on three and a half so so quickly, Josh. I'm not convinced he's gonna he's gonna stay under three and a half in this series. Yeah, I'm skeptical that I took the under on that one and on the Gordon Hayward return. Well, we'll see what happens. <laughs> Mike, are you are you fulfilled with that answer? 
in that discussion? I was just I was just curious. I mean, I you know I I that's a yes. I was curious which way you guys were going to go. Um, what do you guys think of Tatum on Dragic instead of Kemba? I'm not convinced that Dragic is is going to play as well as as he has the last few games. He has not played as well as he did at the beginning of the playoffs. So uh, I think it, it is to be determined. But the switching switching some of those those um, the defensive assignments might be uh, adjustments that they make. I mean, we're going to be switching everything anyway. So yeah. I think a lot of it has to do with the actions that they they are playing on offense. Okay, uh, I have another question. Um, in thinking about Bam Adebayo just obliterating Daniel Tice and us having to live with it, uh, I wonder about whether Robert Williams is an X factor in this series. And I'm like <laughs> using this tone of voice because we talked about this in the past, and it just seems like, uh, despite some flashes of brilliance <laughs> that the uh, national announcers like Robert Williams just can't get his act together to get enough meaningful minutes uh, where he knows what's happening on both offense and defense. And uh, I, I'm not holding my breath, but if he can, I think he's someone that can, can is going to be needed to guard out a bio. Cause if he can't, you're throwing Grant Williams on him. And I don't know if I like that much. Yeah, man. Robert Look, Williams. I think... Oh baby. Robert Williams is going to surprise you. And then he's going to disappoint you. And then he's going to surprise you again. We know what we're going to get. And then, you know, Grant Williams, he's just going to surprise you a little bit. I think he's going to do a fine job. He'll take one charge and it'll be a surprise charge in a big play against Bam, you know, where he's going to get up in him and, and you're going to be like, oh, Grant's actually doing okay against him. Like, I think just seeing different looks like that is going to be a, a slight, I don't know, advantage over what you're thinking, you know, by just thinking Daniel Tice is going to get obliterated by Bam and, and Bam's the biggest problem. I think. I think the versatility that we have uh, is is something. There's something to that, and we already know what we're gonna get. Yeah, I I think we we've been right in the regular season. We've been right about Robert Williams the entire time, which is he had a chance to uh, to be ready for playoff meaningful playoff minutes if he had played all season. And he lost most of the season due to injury. And now he's one or two years away. And it's really that simple. Like, no, Robert Williams is not going to be a reliable option against Bam. Josh nailed it on the head. Uh, He'll do some really exciting good things. And he'll do some really, I guess, exciting, uh, not so good things. Um, uh, Grant Williams, he's going to... I think he'll be effective against Bam away from the basket. But the problem is Bam is so strong and so athletic that even if Grant has perfect box out position, the height difference and and athleticism difference is so significant that Bam will still probably beast him on the offensive boards. Um, And Tice is going to foul out. I I I mean, it's a legit thing to be worried about with Bam and Robert Williams is not going to fix it. Um, does does Ennis Cantor see any minutes in this series? I hope not, but probably. <laughs> it's going to depend on foul trouble and Robert Williams, doesn't it? I say no, but I think that if we advance past this series, you're going to see him a little bit in the finals. 
because the other teams on the West Coast have some size. So he's not a lost cause. You know, he's still he's still an integral part of this team right now that needs to stay ready. Josh or Mike, any other questions about this series? No. Which team has the better coach? <laughs> the Celtics. Wow. Two championships. I would not. I did not expect you to answer that that way, especially not that quickly, Josh. What's the name of this podcast, Mike? <laughs> it's not. It's not green tinted gra- glasses. <laughs> <laughs> You can be you can right. be honest and maintain your pride. Let's let's uh, quickly hit some news and notes around the league. Giannis Antetokounmpo is the talk of the league. He's got one more year on his contract, and he has a decision this summer about whether he wants to sign a supermax contract with the Milwaukee Bucks. He had a meeting with ownership and executives on, of the Bucks, and they promised him that they would spend into the luxury tax. They are putting the full court press on him. He's, I, th- I believe, off on vacation or about to go off on vacation. And uh, you guys let me know today that he has like uh, unfriended or stopped following all of his teammates on Instagram. I don't, I don't do the gram, so I don't know how that works. But uh, what do you guys see happening here, and what potential changes might you see coming, uh, Mike? Can we start with you? Yeah, I, I'm not. I mean. I don't expect any major changes. I think the Bucks are certainly not going to just give Giannis away. You know, they're the exact type of team that will do cut off its nose to spite its face, uh, bend over backwards, pick your metaphor to do anything it can possibly to retain Giannis. Uh, they're not going to trade him. So I don't think there's any chance they get they move from him before next offseason. Even even if it were the prudent move to do, uh, and he had every signal he wanted to leave, um, they're going to scour options for getting a high high quality player on the roster. I don't really know what those options are. Uh, I'm pretty sure OKC is going to laugh and hang up the phone if there's a Eric Bledsoe for Chris Paul trade bandied about. But you know, maybe if there are enough sweetener first round picks in there. Um, Sam Presti will, will add to his coffers. Uh, and I think I wouldn't read too much into kind of Giannis removing all his teammates and the bucks and everything from his Instagram. He's going on vacation. He just had a really frustrating end to a season. I'm sure the whole bucks team is really frustrated with the kind of discontinuity between the way the regular season was going and then the way it picked back up for them in the bubble. Um, they probably feel just something, something slipped in a way that, that was kind of cosmically disadvantaged for them. (laughs) Um, Giannis had an ankle injury that kept him out for a game and a half at the end. Yeah, at that point they were already so badly outcoached and just going to lose the series, even if he stayed healthy. Honestly, that's like a saving grace that he had that injury because it gives like a minor excuse. Um, I mean, they were, yeah, they were already on the verge of a sweep with him healthy the first three games. So, and for the opposite opinion, uh, what else does it mean if you unfriend your teammates? Then you're you're not interested in staying there. I mean, if you're going to go on vacation, what it mean? If you're going to go on vacation, turn your notifications <laughs> off. Like, why why are you got to unfriend everybody? 
Uh, to me, that's a statement move. Like, and, and if you're Giannis, you know that people are going to read into it like that. Just shut your thing off. Josh, are you on Instagram? Yeah, I'm on Instagram. What? I got like four Dude, followers. Yeah, yeah I also don't do Graham. So. <laughs> and I don't even want to speculate as to whether he's going to this team or that team You know, in free agency. It's too early for that. Adam, what do you think? Man, I don't know. <laughs> I, I think he's got another year in Milwaukee, so he's not unfriending. Look, I do Facebook a tiny bit. Uh, you know, <laughs> LinkedIn is really my reference, and and so uh, he's uh, he's unlinked to all of his teammates. So that's not that doesn't mean he's going to have to play with them again for a year. That doesn't mean that he he's done. If he if he were an unrestricted free agent this year and he did that then I think it would mean something. Uh, I have no idea what it means. And Giannis is, is, uh, I, I, Giannis is the kind of a superstar that uh, may not be swayed by the modern uh, agents and um, incentives and attractions that, that lead players to switch teams more often, but also to go to certain teams uh, as, as some other players. He, he seems like he might be different, but... I would have said the same thing about Kevin Durant. I would have said the same thing about Anthony Davis. And uh, we see what has happened with, with both of them, uh, both different situations. But uh, I have no idea. And I, I agree with Josh. Speculation at this point is, is a little much, um, despite what my friend Gordon, who is a Toronto Rapt- Raptors fan, thinks. He thinks the Raptors are going to get Giannis creating cap space and, and match him with uh, Siakam. Um, but I... I I think a number of teams could could make a, a run at him, and uh, the the thing that I would want to speculate about is if you're the Celtics this offseason, what offer do you throw at Milwaukee? Um, it would not surprise me if Giannis chose to not sign the Supermax this summer, and just to see what what might happen going forward. No, he forward. he definitely won't. No, 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 he definitely. I don't. I don't think he. I think he's going to ride out this season, and it's going to be the worst emotional roller coaster for everyone in Milwaukee, not named Giannis. Yeah. So yeah. go, go listen to uh, Ryan Rosillo's recent podcast. He had Bobby Marks on there breaking down the cap situation with Giannis and whether he'd make more money by signing the Supermax or not. Uh, short of it is he can make the, all the money back if he does a short contract and then goes, uh, you know, a short contract somewhere else and then signs the Supermax with them. So, um, but Wait, yeah. he, how does he sign his supermax with them? If he well, he'd be at ten years if he did, signs a three-year oh, deal, yeah. and then he can get that supermax based on it, number of years in the league. So the money would potentially be made back that he'd be missing out on, which is eighty million. But go listen to that podcast. This is Celtics Pride. Bobby Marks is basic. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, can we move on to something hey, else now? He. He was very significant for the Celtics team building, and let's never he take was. that away from him. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Brooklyn. Steve Nash is now the coach of the Brooklyn Nets. Speaking of them, uh, Josh, this is this was surprising to a lot of people. Nash has had lots of conversations about playing different roles. He's been a consultant for the Golden State Warriors, um, and it was we didn't know that he wanted to be a coach so bad. He's got a relationship with Sean Marks. And it sounds like the players are really happy to have him. Um, he, who is going to be? He's got a top assistant that is is well known as well, right? Who's that? Do we know? 
I don't know. I haven't heard about his staff being hired yet. I thought there was a speculation that he was going to uh, bring somebody on who who was really experienced, but um, he's going to need to because he's never been a coach. Yeah, that's right. Um, Josh, how do you see him relating to the players? It was really cool to see him talk about uh, race a lot in his uh, press conference. But uh, yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to get into. There's enough in the media right now about whether he skipped the line and what that means about the racial justice movement right now. I don't want to get into that right well, now. Honestly, I, the most I just, I'm most concerned. I just like that. I just like that as as I think that is something that the players will like, and so I think that just kind of shows who he is, and one reason why players are going to like like having him on their side. Yeah, the only conversation I want to have with you guys is about Kyrie Irving and how they get along, and whether he's the type of guy, you know, or through Durant whether they can keep Kyrie, Kyrie sane enough to, to win games and have a positive culture. Like, this is, this is the guy to create a positive culture, Steve Nash. And you have the cancer in the NBA on the team. Like, I just, <laughs> that's all I want to talk about. So just real quickly to, to touch back, the, the assistant coach was Jacques Vaughn that the oh, right. yeah, yeah. Nets were able to retain. Yep. He was a top assistant under Atkinson, I believe. And, and yeah. he stayed yep. on after Nash's hiring. So, um, and, he and, the, and the players really respect him. He's a, yeah, he was the interim head coach, uh, highly, highly respected, highly valued in the organization. Um, Josh, uh, as far as Kyrie, so this, and especially the way kind of it was framed brings up, really conflicting feelings for me with Kyrie. I feel like Kyrie genuinely suffers from mental, mental health issues. Um, and so I, I, I worry, <laughs> I know I do. I think, I think he either has bipolar disorder or uh, clinical depression. Yeah. That um, makes this a pretty sensitive comment you're about to make, Mike, whatever it's, it's going to be. Yeah, no, no, I'm not. There's not really a huge, I, I think it's, it's really tough to kind of stigmatize him. I think he undoubtedly was not a positive presence in the Celtics locker room. And he has a pretty uh, stark track record on that front. And I, I think it's a combination of real mental health battles that he has. And, the kind of gravity of his personality and his his brand and his presence um, and the way it attracts media attention. And so when you combine kind of some of the, what I perceive to be mood disorders with that much attention, it, it can create some pretty negative affect uh, around an entire team. Um, I think it's a lot for anyone to kind of put on themselves or like for us to put on Steve Nash or, or Durant or anybody else to kind of say they're going to <laughs> make Kyrie or like be able to manage Kyrie. I, I hope, I hope they, they kind of get a system in place, but I think, I think Kyrie because of the combination of factors at play is, is always going to have a little bit of an anchoring or dragging effect on the, the culture of a locker room. Dr. Adam. I'm so excited to see what happens. I think Kyrie is, you called him the biggest cancer in the league. I, I agree, Josh. I, I really think he's disruptive. And uh, he's. I think he's in a good situation with um, Durant there as more of the alpha to keep him in check. And I, I think it's going to take a little bit of time for Kyrie to... to become a problem but he will eventually and um unless he decides that he can accept being a sidekick again and just plays that role 
Um, but I, I, it's a, such an interesting hire. I think that um, that people are assuming that this Nets team is going to be better than they will. I don't think the Nets are going to be as good. I, 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 I question agree. whether they're going to be a championship contender next year. I agree. Uh, I think, you know, not only from the perspective of Kyrie Irving, you don't know what you're going to get from him week to week. Uh, the perspective of, you know, the Boston Celtics management, we're ready to drive him to the airport. Uh, you know, all the stuff about leadership and how he wants to learn how to lead and he wanted his own team. That's why he left Cleveland. And then, you know, he doesn't know how to be a leader day in and day out. And I guess you could say that Steve Nash could help teach him that or that it's really Kevin Durant's team, so he's not going to have to do that. But then you're asking, well, can Kyrie follow? And maybe Kyrie, uh, Kevin Durant is the best example of somebody that he would follow. But uh, you know, at the end of the day, I'm thinking this guy, he, he's a mess. <laughs> he's a mess. And I even look at it from the perspective, and I don't think that there's like bias in this, but I don't think his injuries are even legitimate. Like if he's, if he's a little older, maybe he'd have a wake up call. Like, okay, I only got a couple of years left to really, you know, put my stamp on the history of the league and, and decide what my legacy is going to be. Um, or if his injuries were really life, uh, not sorry, not life threatening, but career threatening, you know, he's, he's played so few games the last couple of years. You'd think he has a, a career threatening injury and would have a chance to have a wake up call. I'm trying to think of all the, the psychological ways that a wake-up call could happen. I just don't see any, I don't see any legitimate wake-up call there for him. Um, he's just always been able to decide his own fate, even to the point of saying that he wouldn't play in the bubble. And I don't see him not doing his own thing, whether you got Kevin Durant next to him or Steve Nash next to him. I think that's a problem. And you know, kudos to Steve Nash for taking on that cha- challenge. That's a monumental challenge, but I don't see this ending well. If things go sour between Nash and Kyrie, who do you think management will prioritize? Depends. I, I think Nash, because I don't see Kevin Durant turning against Kyrie and asking management to get rid of them since they joined the team together so that they could be playing with their friends. No, so you you think so Nash is management gone. would you, prioritize yeah. so you'd think management would prioritize Kyrie and get rid of Nash. Yep. yep. Hmm. I think the I don't know. I don't know. The coach is usually the first to leave, but I I I mean, yeah, I think I think it'll be interesting. I think I think it's I think Nash Nash struck me when I heard the news. It was definitely surprising. It, he seemed like he makes sense relative more so than I think a lot of other coaching hires probably would. I think he's got as good a chance, given his longstanding relationship with not just Marks, but his his pre-existing relationship with um, Durant and his, you know, hall of fame career as a point guard he has a chance to like kind of unlock whatever needs to be unlocked there but yeah i i don't think it'll i don't think it'll work out i think as soon as they kind of committed to this two-headed dragon uh one of the heads being Kyrie, they kind of signed a deal with the devil that they were going to regret 
yeah, you're going to have a, a good player in Joe Harris that's going to get lost in the shuffle. The whole thing about Karis Levert and Spencer Dinwiddie, one of those two guys is not going to be happy. you got DeAndre Jordan still on the roster, and you need to keep him, yet you've got a better player. There's just so many different wrinkles. This is not going to end well. There's a lot of other things going on, but we don't have time to talk about it right now. So uh, how about we end? Well, the last thing we need to mention is this Bill Russell article, Adam, I think. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, so Bill Russell just put out an article on the Players' Tribune called Racism is Not a Historical Footnote. It's really well done. It's fascinating from a Bill Russell and Celtics and race in America perspective. Please go read it. Thank you all for listening. This is Celtics Pride. <laughs>